1: Wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Indo-Daily, but first...
0: When I got out to the Wicklow
2: Mountains, when I came to the end of the line... I, I felt the sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach.
1: I'm Nicola Tallent, and every week you can hear stories about criminals, drugs, and the sins of the underworld on my podcast, Crime World. This was a stitch-up from start to end. I talk to those who get up close and personal with gangsters, mobsters, and notorious criminals. They have taught us every conceivable
2: way of disguising
1: cocaine. Crime World is available wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo-Daily, rural crime and the story of Tom Nyland. On January 18th, 73-year-old Tom Nyland suffered horrific head injuries during an aggravated burglary at his home in Screen, County Sligo. Tom is fighting for his life in hospital, while his family tried to come to terms with the idea that he was targeted by an organised gang for as little as
2: €800. No mercy, merciless. It was... He could be you know, he could have easily been dead, and I don't think they cared.
1: I'm Kevin Doyle, and today Michael Walsh tells us the story of his cousin Tom. And special correspondent with the Irish Independent Paul Williams describes how as the country opens up after COVID, the criminals are also getting back to work in rural Ireland. Michael, before we get into the
2: story, how is Tom doing now? Tom is he's still on life support at the moment. He has he hasn't deteriorated, he's been supported. He's breathing and everything is done by the machine, so he's being fed, you know, everything is being done by a machine and um, but he's not there's no change, basically. There's no change. Um, we're still waiting to see how things will go, you know. Um, we don't think it's going to go very well. So and I you know, I don't honestly think in my, my personal view is I don't think that he's going to come out of it.
1: Tell us about the Tom of a month a month ago before this horrific attack happened? Uh, you know, he was 73 years old, but by all accounts, a very strong man, had a very full life and very independent.
2: Very independent. Um, always has been Tom. He's He's been, like I say, another thing that he's, he had no he had no siblings. You know, he coped very well on his own, uh, but he did, you know, he did um, he was involved in my family, the seven of us in our, in our family, and he was you know, intermingle the same as the rest of the members of the family, you know. Um, but um, a month ago, Tom would have been, um, you know, he had been going to some of the neighbours, visiting the neighbours and helping them out, as he always did. He was retired and then he he sought out things to do. I mean, he, he has always been very helpful to people, but it just gave him an opportunity to go around and see more people and do things for them. He had to be doing something, he, you know something constructive Um, even people that were younger than himself you know he'd help out these old people not you know and he'd be unaware unaware of his own age and uh, like for some of the old people he'd be doing the garden he'd do some gardening for them you know cutting hedges building little walls or something like that he'd been a farmer all his life is that right he worked on a farm on a on a very large farm as was like a farm laborer but he, he did have his own he had a, a little farm of his own like all his life since he was 14 years old
1: we talk about rural crime and isolation is a word to come into it. It doesn't sound to me as though Tom would have felt isolated in where he was living. He was very much in a community.
2: He was very much in a community. He was very much aware of what was going on and always had an opinion on it, you know. But, um, but he didn't show much fear himself. You know, Tom, Tom was very strong-willed. And um, no, you know, he didn't put any... I mean, he did, lo- he did close his gates late at night outside the house you know you've seen them there on the, the photographs but um generally they were left open for people to call into him, you know anybody was welcome to tom day or night no he wasn't he wasn't afraid i think we we haven't had anything so brutal in in a good while in this area you know we've had break ins and things like that but something like this um you you can't prepare for it you know I mean, you can, but you just don't know. And they come in like the way those—it was, it was like organized crime. The way they they came in, they were they were well organized. They had, you know, they were able to find find where he lived. They were versed in getting ready for the getaway. And of course, Tom—they knocked on the door, which they don't normally do. As soon as he opened the door, they just burst straight in. And first thing was totally disarm him beat, beat the hell out of him like that he wouldn't be able to fight back or anything like that just kicked and battered l- relentlessly until you know they totally disabled him um, broke his bones broke his eye socket jumped on his head dreadful and you know like it was there was no there was no holding back they didn't I'd say they didn't care if they killed him they, no fear in them whatsoever Not an inch of mercy, even tied him, tied him up a bit and took his phone to stop him if if he did recover to, you know, to get in contact with the guards and that. But Tom, as I said, very strong man, managed to drag himself out to the road and he was just a, a bloody mass at that stage. The people that stopped at the side of the road didn't even know what it was. They couldn't make out. They didn't know if it was an injured animal or something on the road. Till they um, got right up close to him. It was dark, like, I mean, as well. But um, the first, I know the man that first came on him first, and he says, I just could not get over that it was him. He was unrecognizable, and he could barely speak, you know. He was trying to talk and tell them what had happened to him. Um, and then they alerted the neighbors, and, and it went from there. You know, they, they got on to the guards and ambulance and so on. He could be, you know, he could have easily been dead, and I don't think they cared.
1: How did you feel, Michael, when, when you saw him? Because that must have been some shock, given what you've
2: described. It is a shock. I mean, you can't imagine it. I mean, we see horror films, but this was just the reality of this. This this is my my cousin, Tom, that's, you know, you know yourself. If, you, if you're if family, you know, you have, you expect some recognition. But when I went in and looked at him, I didn't know it was him. You know, I really couldn't until they, they said he's in there. And they did warn me. They said, now, you know, just prepare yourself. And again, people tell you things like that, but you can't be prepared for something like that. And like I said, grotesque. It was like something made up for a horror film. His head was enormous. It was black and blue, purple. Um, and he his eyes too were swollen. He was he could barely see out. Um, actually, one of his eyes was covered over at that, that stage. They had the one that they had smashed his eye socket. So he was only using one eye at that time. And um, um, what do you do? You, you're aware, you know, you're shocked and you don't want to let them know that you're shocked. You know, this person in front of you doesn't realize how bad they are. Mm. And you don't want...
1: You have to hide your own
2: emotion. Oh, you do. God, you do. You, you have to do that for their sake. Because you can imagine if somebody came in, if you if it was yourself, and somebody looked to, takes a look at you and freaks out, like, you don't want that at this stage. You want somebody to comfort you.
1: I don't even know how to pose this question to you, Michael, but what do you think of the people who carried out this? Or I don't know whether you'd want to face them in a room, but I mean, obviously you want them to be caught, but... It's hard to comprehend that other humans did this to a man.
2: Well, you're using my, my, some of the terms I've used. You know, they're, they're, they're not human and I wouldn't want to face And I was asked that question, what would you say to them? And I was trying to think, I just said, you know, I couldn't talk to them. I wouldn't be able to talk to them, not in a civilised manner or even I couldn't. My rage. I couldn't even let out my rage on them because you would be talking to absolute. And it's not fair on animals. We always make the connection with animals. Animals never did this to to each other. These are, oh, I don't know what, a subhuman mentality. To get together and decide they're going to rob an old man. There had to be some planning in in this as well, you know. Um, And they had planned this to go in and rob him. They don't think about anything else. They don't think about hurting or, or anything like that. They just want to get in there, get the money and get away. And it is shocking that they have no conscience whatsoever. And I couldn't talk to people like that, you know. I would have a solution to that that wouldn't be acceptable to the courts. But it's not in us to do it when it comes to it anyway. We wouldn't do, we talk the talk, but we would never dream of doing that. i puke, you know.
1: For the sake, as you suggested, maybe six or 800 euro. Yeah. It's it's grim, Michael, and there, there's no way, I suppose, of summing it up. But I, I hope that... That Tom pulls through and 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 I suppose regains some of his independence, but it sounds from what you say, no matter what happens, it's it's going to be a very tough time ahead for for you and your family.
2: Yeah, but me and my family, everybody, the community. We, you know, we we'll, we just have to cope. We we will get on with it in time. And 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 the sad thing is, you know, it will probably fade. And I'd like to think it wouldn't. It'll fade till the next time, but it will happen. It has happened in the past in places. It ha- happened to, to us here now. It will happen again because there's absolutely nothing to stop them. They're vile subhumans. You cannot reform people like that. And I know we have to be civilized in our treatment of them, but we, it has to be more. It has to be something that deters them, that they wouldn't dream of doing things like that. And they're terrorists. I've I've used that term. They're community terrorists. Domestic terrorism at its worst because it is hands-on. It's not at a distance with a gun like our usual vision of terrorists. This is a hands-on thing. This took somebody to hands-on, viciously beat somebody almost to death. and And it could be death yet.
1: Paul Williams the phrase rural crime we use it a lot but it's kind of a catch-all phrase mm-hmm. what exactly do we mean when we talk about rural crime being a problem
0: basically rural crime can be it can be summed up as there are two parts to it one where you have systemic well-planned coordinated targeted robberies from farms businesses and from people's homes, and you have opportunistic criminal gangs operating and spotting a place in, in the countryside where they want to rob, whether it's an old person's home or whatever. The, the commonality between them is that they are there to, and they exploit, the isolation of the countryside. And it is very, very distinct from urban crime because in urban crime urban areas you have lights you have CCTV systems you have more police patrolling you have neighbours living closer to each other it is a completely different type of crime and it has been a phenomenon here in Ireland uh, rural crime that term from the time I started off in my career in the early 80s uh, and it has remained a serious problem since the 1980s uh, like we've seen some quite a few people elderly people in their homes murdered uh, very seriously injured And what it has done and what this latest outrage will do again is to instill absolute terror in the local communities, particularly amongst vulnerable elderly people living alone. It is, If you want to describe a hierarchy of criminal uh, badness or outrage uh, or despicable crimes, this is right up there uh, as a despicable crime because this elderly man was deliberately targeted and brut- brutally assaulted.
1: I remember back around 2016, you had attended uh, a number of local meetings around the country. There was a huge debate at it. I remember we had a big debate at the ploughing championships um, around rural crime. It became a big topical issue in Leinster House with the politicians. Um, and it has, obviously, like like a lot of these things, it has gone a little bit off the, the political agenda in the meantime, is that a result of the pandemic or have has, after that, I suppose, Furore at the time, was there a clampdown?
0: Well, the reason the Furore bro- broke out at the time, and we did, we campaigned on this in Irish Independent uh, for uh, about two years, was that the Garda cutbacks and the, the austerity process had basically seriously diminished the ability of Angarda Shea to patrol the roads of rural Ireland. For example, in your home county, there was one squad car to cover the entire county. Uh, the government at the time and the Garda at highest level denied that there was any problem, yet people were coming to us in their droves telling us about being robbed and whole communities were coming together talking about this. Now, that austerity was lifted. They they got off their backsides and they did something about it. Uh, more police were recruited and more police patrols were put on the uh, on the roads of rural Ireland, and it did reduce. Now. After that, then when the pandemic came along, like pandemic really did, was bad. It was bad for everybody, but it was particularly bad for criminals because in order, these are traveling criminals, as we described them, who travel around the country, identifying targets and robbing them, just like this poor man in Sligo. Um, and the it was impossible for them to move around because there were so many guarded checkpoints monitoring uh, movements purely because we're trying to keep people safe from the pandemic, but you know, just like everything else in society, uh, following the lockdown and the reopening, uh, criminals are going back to work. And these guys, the people who are involved in what we call rural crime, are the gangs involved in it are about seven or eight gangs nationally. And they're part of a national network where they interact together and help each other and work together. But they also work locally. For example, the suspects in this case are a traveling criminal gang who are very much suspected of being part of this national network and have formed for this in the past.
1: So you're saying there are actually a number of separate gangs, but almost like a co-op. They they work together, give each other tip offs, and they find targets and
0: communities that they see as vulnerable. Yeah. It's an it operates just like a network. It's organized crime. It is a new it's another branch of organized crime.
1: And when you met people around the country that time, and I know you spoke to a lot of people who had been robbed or attacked and a lot of people who were living in fear. Um, I remember the politicians did to some extent argue that that fear was being stoked by the media or that individual incidents were getting so much coverage that it made everybody feel afraid. What was your view in terms of why
0: people were afraid? You see, (laughs) it's particularly elderly people see an elderly woman living on her own we interviewed loads of these people uh, at the time and like these guys come into your house even if they don't lay a finger on you the fact that they broke into their homes like the people living in rural Ireland live very peacefully crime rates in rural Ireland are very, very low. They're the lowest you'll ever get. Uh, and, and that was the political
1: argument, Paul, was that the stats didn't back up this idea that there's a problem with rural crime.
0: But they were wrong in that because the stats did show that there was a major upsurge since the, the, the austerity in the late late 2008, 2009, 2010, that it had crept up, that there was a problem around the country because the amount of people that came to us talking about rural crime and who were being victims. For example, I ended up chairing a meeting that was held in uh, in. Two and a half to 3,000 people turned up at that meeting, Kevin. And there was intense anger. Another meeting that took place in Kells or Trim and that was attended by over a 1,000 people. So if there wasn't a genuine problem in rural Ireland at the time, those kind of numbers wouldn't have turned up. And also, the government wouldn't have been forced to do something about it.
1: And so what is the picture now? The resources were increased then. Obviously, the pandemic... Um, perhaps brought uh, an unexpected reduction in this type of crime. How are the Guardi equipped now to take on the likely increase in this sort of, of crime again?
0: Well, they've had a very successful unit they set up. Um, it's attached to, I think, to uh, to the, the NBCI uh, in Garda headquarters in Dublin. And they're a specialist squad of cops that just travelled the motorways in high-powered cars they track the travelling criminal gangs who operate particularly, say, from Dublin, Louth, and places like that. Um, In this particular case, what we're looking at at the moment in Sligo, these guys, this gang, is local. But they would be a gang that they would have been watching On several occasions in the past, and have come to guard attention on many occasions in the past. But primarily, they started proactively following these gangs. And the extraordinary scenes across the motorways of Ireland in the middle of the night for for years, uh, of these high-speed chases and very, very dangerous high-speed chases where the police intercept these guys. And they had a system set up whereby if they got on the national network, for example, and heard that there'd been a robbery down in Thurlis, they would have a, the intelligence and would have the knowledge to say, hang on, we know they're going to be coming back on the motorway network at some stage and we will intercept them. And that's why we have all these high-power... High high speed chases but there are so many of these gangs operating Uh, and as soon as one group from a gang are taken out of the picture there are other people within that group uh, prepared to take over and continue. And some of the people involved in these robberies are as young as some of them, or can be as young as 10 and 11 and 12 are being brought on these jobs. to put Children? Them Children. Oh, absolutely. One of the big things that came out of uh, that rural crime uh, campaign at the time five years ago was that, you know, farmers talking about finding it where people have broken in and stolen diesel and machinery and stuff like that, whereby they could see the evidence on the ground with the footprints of a child no more than five and six having put through a window to open a door to let them in. You know to rob it so that is very much a a characteristic of this particular kind of crime the kind of people involved they are bringing and utilize children like gangland killer killings in dublin uh, and and criminals killing each other and robbing each other and stuff like that they're all of a certain age they're they're all old enough to hold a gun they're in their late teens upwards but this particular phenomenon uh, has a very high number of kids involved And
1: then just going back to the case of Tom Nyland, what do you expect that Gardaí are doing in that particular case? Do you think that it does seem from the reporting from our colleague, Ivan Murray in Sligo, that they seem to know who they're looking for here. Do you expect that they will find those responsible uh,
0: for this horrible robbery? Oh, I'd be absolutely confident that they will. Y- you have to remember there's certain dimensions to this crime. For example, when these people went into that house, they thought they were going to have a, that Tom was going to be an easy target. He was a big, strong man, my understanding is. And he was very, and he was well able to mind himself. So he put up a fight. And somebody, they, they, they from what we know of his injuries, that then this became a very chaotic crime very quickly. That's, whenever you see a crime like that taking place, it, one of the things from a, an investigative point of view is that you have a, you have a have a huge amount of uh, forensic evidence when a crime is chaotic. Uh, I have absolutely no doubt to catch these guys. They already have major suspects in mind, I understand, but because, the reason to have these suspects in mind because is where they live geographically and their previous form, what they're known for, this particular group of criminals. Um and it like as Evans uh, story today says that, you know, tells us that, you know, they had followed Tom from they had been clearly watching him and they would have had access to that area and would have been known in that area and would have been part of the local scene you know so it was easy for them to follow him and watch him and they decided for whatever reason we will we will rob this man tonight
1: That was Paul Williams Special Correspondent for the Irish Independent I'm Kevin Doyle and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Tabitha Monaghan recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by John Smith If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.